0: the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which we saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the very word of God. All right, so this morning, as we begin our study of the book of Micah, as you know, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, we call them minor only because of the brevity of these prophets' recorded words in comparison to those of the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There are seven chapters in Micah, roughly 3,000 words, and not a whole lot that most Christians probably know about this little book. Perhaps the most known fact is that Micah 5 verse 2 holds a permanent place in the Christmas story since it is cited in Matthew 2 verse 6. So I thought, well, this seems like an appropriate little book for us to tackle during this Advent season. Let's spend our week together today and the next three weeks uh, getting ourselves a little more familiar with the book of Micah. Can we do that? Simple goal. All right, so today, uh, as we usually do when we begin a study of a book in the Bible, we we need to get ourselves introduced to the book. As we get into more details in the week ahead, it will help if we have something of an idea of the general nature of the book of Micah, what can we know about this little book? Who was the prophet Micah? When did he live? And what did he have to say? One way that we can get ourselves oriented to what we will be studying is to consider first Micah and his career, second, God and his covenant. And then third, sin and its consequences. Micah and his career, God and his covenant, sin and its consequences. First, let us consider together the man behind this book and the career that he had as one of Israel's prophets. The name Micah is a common Hebrew name. It is the shortened version of the name Micaiah. At least nine different people are called by that name in the Old Testament. But the Micah that we are concerned with here is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament, although his words in Micah 3.12 are recalled in Jeremiah chapter 26. So Micah made an impact in his day. What he had to say was remembered, in Israel's history. But the only thing that we know about Micah, the man himself, is what we find in this short book. We'll get to know him better, I assume, as we go along. But from the first verse, we see that he is identified by his hometown, Moresheth. Moresheth is located in the southern region of Judah. It is not a well-known place, was undoubtedly, in Micah's day, a small village. It's located some 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem near the Philistine border. Although this is where Micah is from, it is not where he lived. It's not where he worked. He lived in Jerusalem, where he served as one of Israel's great prophets. He was a contemporary of three other biblical prophets, Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. The first two prophesied primarily to the northern kingdom, while Micah and Isaiah were primarily prophets to the southern kingdom. In order to understand Micah and his book, we need to understand something about the particular vocation of a prophet in Israel. Here's the first thing you should know. Prophets were not known as religious people. Prophets were not known as religious people, at least not primarily, and at least not in the way that we tend to use the word religion. Prophets were part of the political system, which is why you're not surprised to find Micah of Morasheth living in the capital city. He spends his career In Washington DC we might say and you know what he's there for but of course the prophets like Micah were religious they believed in God they talked about God not in some culturally religious way that some politicians today speak of God when they end their speeches with those expected words God bless America prophets were also not religious fanatics As politicians today might be viewed, when they start citing Bible verses in their political stump speeches, or talking about Christian values, our modern secular society, emerging from the Enlightenment, crafted a thicker line of demarcation between the religious and the secular than we find in the ancient world, and by the way, even today, in non-Western-dominated societies. When Hamas militants charged into Israel shouting, Allahu Akbar, God is great. Guess what? They meant it. And they thought they were acting in line with what their God said. So we need to be able to understand this if we're going to understand Micah and the nature of biblical prophecy. When you read the book... Don't let your mind go, first of all, to our enlightened view of what religion is all about. That would be to misunderstand everything that Micah is going to say to us. It would be to misunderstand everything about the nature of biblical prophecy. You see, a prophet in the Old Testament was every bit associated with the political realities of his day as he was with what you and I would call religion. This is important to understand And it impacts not just how we read a prophetic book like Micah, but also how we read the entire Bible. Most people today think the Bible is in the category of religion. You see what we do? When here you're reading about somebody who's speaking in a world in which you would classify him more about politics, about the real stuff of life. Many Christians today, again, have unknowingly bought into the enlightenment distinction between the sacred and the secular, between the religious and the political. This has greatly impacted how we interpret and apply the scriptures to our lives. So let's just do it for a moment. Again, in your mind's eye, where do you see these Old Testament prophets? Do you see them in the temple, and associate them with religion? Yes, you will find them there on occasion, but you are just as likely, maybe more likely, to find them in the king's palace, in the White House, we might say today. The prophets had an audience with the kings, even bad kings, were associated with prophets, both true and false ones. You might remember the story when King Ahab contemplated going on the offensive to take the city of Remoth-Gilead. He consulted with 400 prophets, and they all gave him the green light. God is on your side. Go take the city. But we come to find out that these 400 prophets were basically yes-men. And Ahab knew it. The only one who advised him otherwise was another Micah, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. We read about it, 1 Kings 22, 8. King Ahab hated him because, quote, he never prophesied good concerning me, but evil. I don't like those kind of counselors, Now, he's telling me that I'm doing the wrong thing. But Micaiah, we find, was the only true prophet, and Ahab died in the battle. The point that I'm making is that the prophets in the Bible were not like modern-day preachers who sometimes get political. They were a part of the political fabric of their day. They occupied an official vocation within Israel called to speak to the political realities of their time. That's why Micah tells us here in verse 1, not only who he is, tells us his hometown, where he's from, but he also tells us when he lived. Notice what he says. He identifies himself by the kings who ruled the southern kingdom during his time, the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These three kings take us all the way back to the late 8th century BC and into the early 7th century. This is not a designation of the kings who ruled during his lifetime, but more specifically, the kings who ruled during his career. These are the kings who ruled when Micah made his prophecies. Again, we cannot understand Micah until we see him as a prophet during the days of these kings to whom and for whom he prophesied. In other words, the book of Micah, like so much of the rest of the Bible, is concerned about what you're concerned about. Real life events, historical realities, political priorities. The Jewish and the Christian scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, if you will, are about the world And all created reality. Yes, of course, they are about God. But they are about the God who created the world, who created the universe. The God who made the world, who loves the world, and who cares about what happens in his world. And that's why he sent prophets like Micah. Into the world. When we read the book of Micah, we learn something not only about this eighth century prophet and his career, we learn something about this eighth century prophet's God and his covenant with Israel. Who is Micah's God? Well, the book begins like this The Word of the Lord. Are you looking at it? What do you see there? The word of the Lord. What do you notice about the word Lord? All caps. Okay, we have got to have a little reading lesson here, how we read our English Bibles. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. What we are about to read, we are told, this is the claim, it's nothing less than the word of the Lord. It is sacred scripture the word of God. But who is this God who claims to speak to us in the book of Micah? He is the Lord. Does that mean anything to you? There's a lot that you have to know about this word, Lord, in all caps, if you're gonna understand Micah's God and his covenant. This is the God of Israel, And we know him best, we're going to know who he is, as we consider him and his covenant relationship with Israel. Again, notice first of all his name. He is the Lord. All capital letters. Why is it like that? The capital letters in most English Bibles indicate to us that we have here come to the sacred name of the God revealed to us in the Bible. In the ancient world, there's lots of gods. All the nations have gods. This is the God of Israel, the Lord. This is his name. You've got other gods. You've got Baal. You've got lots of pagan deities. Here's a god. His name is the Lord. Yahweh is how you'll often hear his name. It's the personal name of the creator God. The reason most English Bibles say LORD, in all caps, where we find the sacred name, is not, I I shouldn't have to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this, it's a little personal for me, it's not because there is some conspiracy to erase God's sacred name. Knock comes on your door, you get offered a watchtower, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to try to tell you. They're going to say, why do you have Lord? This is Jehovah. You're trying to erase the sacred name. I get a little agitated by this. Because all you need to do is read the preface of your English translation, and you'll see there's no conspiracy here. There's no attempt to cover up God's name. Not in the slightest. Do not buy it. Just look them in the eye and say, You're just wrong. And then open your English Bible, go to the preface. You know your Bible has a preface, right? It tells you about how the translators are taking this approach to translating the Hebrew and the Greek into your language. And as anybody who works with languages knows, there's approaches to how we do this. So we're using the ESV. So let me just read to you from its preface. It tells you why you have LORD in all caps. Did you know that? You read your preface, don't you? Like in New Year's Day, you don't go Genesis 1-1. You read the preface. When you read a book, you read those things in Roman numerals at the beginning, don't you? You should. Here's what it says. I'm on a hobby horse here. I just, oh, it gets so mad about this. Here's what the preface says. God, the maker of heaven and earth, introduced himself To the people of israel with a special personal name the consonants for which are y-h-w-h transliterated into english of course the exact pronunciation of y-h-w-h is uncertain because the jewish people considered the personal name of god to be so holy that it should never be spoken aloud And that makes sense, by the way, if you understand ancient Hebrew. There's no vowels in ancient Hebrew at all. So it's oral tradition. I know it's... it's comp- Jehovah's Witnesses don't want you to know that because they probably don't even know that, to be honest with you. Um, here's what... Here's what I, instead of reading the word YHWH, therefore, they would normally read the Hebrew word Adonai, which we usually translate as Lord, and the ancient translations into Greek, Syriac, and Aramaic also follow this practice. When the vowels of the word Adonai are placed with the consonants of YHWH, this results in the familiar word Jehovah that was used in some earlier English Bible translations. So just tell your Jehovah's Witness friend the name Jehovah is a completely made-up name and watch them get angry. Maybe you shouldn't do that. As is common among English translations today, the ESV usually renders the personal name of God, Y-H-W-H, by the word Lord printed in small capitals. There it is. Yeah, Enough said. Just gently close the door and go about your day. Okay. But the God of Micah is the Lord. Jehovah, if you prefer, it's fine. It's the personal name of the creator God. Now, who named God? God did. But why? Have you ever wondered why God gave himself a name? Well, to take a name is to take on an identity, a personhood. God, you know this, right? You get to know somebody, you get to know their name. You don't just say, hey, buddy, unless you've forgotten the name, right? It's personal. God takes a name. Listen to me. The God of the Bible, the God who made all things, takes a name because he wants us to know him as a person. He wants us to have a relationship with him. By taking a name, God, the creator God, has come near to us. By taking a name, the creator God indicates, in no uncertain terms, he wants to be known by us. And it is by this name that the God of the Bible, the creator God, becomes known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he is the God of Israel. The Bible then is clearly the story of Israel and Israel's God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. These two cannot be separated. You try to know who the God of the Bible is apart from his covenant relationship with his people Israel, you will not know God. Likewise, you try to understand who Israel is in the Bible apart from covenant relationship with Israel's God, you're going to misunderstand Israel. There's a lot of that going on today. Micah is a prophet of God, which means he is a prophet to Israel. Yes, that is a political designation. When you read in the Bible about, in the Old Testament in particular, about Israel, you are talking about a geopolitical reality in a certain time, in a certain place in real history. But why should we care? Why would we spend our time together? Talking about the history of some ancient civilization. I mean, unless you're a history buff, why do the rest of us care? Here's why. Because the creator God, who loves his world, promised to save his world through Israel. You got that? This is <laughs> this is so critical to understanding everything about the Bible uh, in perspectives that we encourage you to take. If you want to understand the mission of God, then you're going to get this. Like, this is lesson one, right, Emily? This is lesson one. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 says that through you, through God's covenant people, God is going to bring salvation to all creation, to everything he made. God's not going to throw it away. God's going to save it. Like dirt, rocks, trees. The world that God made, the world you live in, God cares about it. God promises all the way back in the 12th chapter of Genesis, the first 12th chapter of the Bible, that through Israel, God's going to bring salvation to all creation. It's a covenant promise that is at the heart of Israel's story throughout the Old Testament. And it is the promise that is at the heart of the New Testament as well. Because the Christian claim, this is what you believe, Christian, whether you know it or not. The Christian claim is that God, in fact, has done it. He has acted decisively, fulfilled all of his Old Testament covenant promises to Israel in his Messiah. So when we pick up a book like Micah, just as we would with any other Old Testament book, we are picking up a time and a place in the great story of salvation. When we come to a text like this, we come to see not so much religious truths, if by religion we are thinking only of non-material, metaphysical possibilities, That's what most people think about religion, right? We will simply not be able to sustain that kind of approach to Micah very long because Micah takes us in the first verse to the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. We're in a time and a place in real history, the late 8th century B.C. And then he says things like this. Just look at verse 6. God says, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country. And that means exactly what it means. We'll see this next week. It means a real life place, a city, was going to be overrun by an invading army. Micah prophesied during the time in which the northern kingdom of Israel, with its capital city Samaria, was conquered by the mighty Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. And, you know, this isn't the kind of stuff that's like in the, in the, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, and you have maps, and this is like a made-up world. We're talking about real history, right? You don't have to be a Christian to know. We're talking about real-life historical events. And Micah is not speaking with hyperbole in verse 6. He is talking quite literally about an invasion of a foreign army against the northern kingdom of Israel. Micah is as real and true to life as that. The biblical story, the story of salvation, is the story of history. It's the story of the creator God's interaction with history. His covenant promise to save his creation as he acts in history through Israel. There can be no strong division between the religious and the political in seeking to understand the Bible or in seeking to understand the God of the Bible and his covenant with Israel. So, if the Bible is about how the creator God fulfills his covenant with Israel and so brings salvation to the world through Israel, this will then help us understand and apply the material that we will encounter in Micah as well as in all the prophets. Micah is not entirely dissimilar from what you're going to read in any other biblical prophet. This material can be summarized simply as sin and its consequences. That's the book of Micah. It's it's basically the, the material in every Old Testament prophet. Here's what one commentator says about Micah. The most prominent theme in Micah is judgment. Sound fun? (laughs) It's a theme that's found in every chapter. I wish I could get around it. I wish I could give you a more smiley theme than that. That's it. Just right next to your Bible, theme, judgment, and you got it. It's pervasive. God announces through the prophet that he is bringing judgment in response to the sin of his people Israel. Look at Micah 1 verse 5 and notice that the invading armies are coming To annihilate Samaria because they are the response of God to the sins of his people. That's what Micah says. But the judgment of God against Israel cannot be rightly understood. This is why we just talked about this. Apart from his covenant with them. Boy, this this matters infinitely in trying to understand the Bible. When God brings judgment against Israel, he does so because God is true to his promise. Here's the point. For God to ignore sin, the sin of Israel, would be for God to be wicked, unfaithful, unrighteous just think of it if God is going to save the world through Israel Genesis 12 wonderful promise you're like let's go (laughs) then God cannot be silent when Israel goes astray does that make sense all right well God is certainly not silent in Micah In verse 1, just look at it. In verse 1, we are told that the word of the Lord came to Micah. (laughs) This verb here commonly designates an event coming into being. It's vivid. We might translate it, the word of the Lord happened to Micah of Moresheth. For the prophet, the message that he gives to us is a dynamic and powerful event. We'll see this as we go along. This is a message that comes from the same voice that created the cosmos and directed Israel's history all the way up to this point. The material that we'll find in Micah may be more difficult to understand It may be less interesting to read than the great narrative stories in Genesis and Exodus or in Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, but it is no less significant. And God's people then, as well as now, need to take note of what God says to us in Micah. Also in verse 1, we are told that this word of the Lord is what Micah saw. Notice the second verb in verse 1 the word of the Lord that Micah saw. This verb does not mean that Micah received his message in some sort of dreamy or visionary experience. He undoubtedly heard the message more than he actually saw something. The verb here refers to the fact that the message Micah heard was his perception of divine revelation. Micah is claiming here, as a prophet, as a true prophet, to know what God knows. He is is claiming to know what God actually thinks about what is happening in history. And, therefore, the mindset that God's people ought to adopt as well. Now, just think about that for a moment. You read about what's going on in the world And a lot of people are staking a claim to be representing what God thinks about that event, right? Micah is saying, as a true prophet, I heard, I saw, I know what God is saying about the events that are happening in real history in our day. You can say, I don't think he's right. I think he's off. He's not a true prophet, but let's at least see what he has to say. And if he is a true prophet, then he's also telling us if this is what God thinks, then God's people should think the same way. According to Micah, what is God's perspective that he expects his people to have as well? How does God want us to think and live in history? Well, Micah Tells us explicitly in one of his other well known verses in Micah 6, verse 8. This is one of the great summaries of prophetic religion. God expects his people to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with him. That's what God thinks in the historical realities of his day, this is what God expects. This is what God requires. This is what God demands. Israel's failure to do that is what has brought about God's judgment. Now, when you and I read Micah today, we have to take into account that we are in a different time and a different place than Micah's original audience. That goes without saying. But Micah's message to his original audience may not apply in the same way that it ought to apply to us today. As Christians, the coming of Jesus, who the New Testament claims is the true prophet, the coming of Jesus is the true prophet, the one who succeeds in New Testament claim to save the world, and the one who, by the way, has completely redefined the true Israel. That's for another day. All of this will take us to different applications than what Micah's original audience could have made. But there can be no doubt that a text like Micah 6.8 is about a straight line of application from his original audience to those who today would claim to be God's people. This is what God wants from you. You ready? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's it. And those who refuse to adhere to this perspective must be warned of the consequences of sin. The judgment of God is the consequence for the sin of his people. But brothers and sisters, that's not the only consequence. Commentators will tell you that it's difficult to give an outline to the book of Micah. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But a common one, and the one that we are going to take in the next three weeks, is to see in Micah Three large sections. Chapters one and two, that we'll take next week, chapters three and five, and then chapters six and seven. In each of these three sections, we find what do you think the message is? Judgment. But in each of these three sections, which is why many scholars outline the book in this way they all end with a message of hope. Let's read together the last message of hope, the last words in Micah, the ones that we read this morning. Micah 7, verse 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. If Micah wanted us to just leave his book with the message of judgment as the last taste in our mouth, he messed up, didn't he, with those verses? You see, the God of the Bible, the God who judges sin, will be finally known as a God of infinite hope. Judgment, death, will not be the last word. Not with this God, not the God who created all things. No way. This is a God, did you see in verse 18, who pardons iniquity. You come in here today and you say, man, I've really messed up this week. Here's good news. You meet the God of the Bible. You've met a God who pardons. passes over transgression for the uh, remnant of his inheritance. Look, he does not retain his anger forever because God does not delight in judgment. If you worship a God who is delighted in judgment, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. This is a God who delights, look what it says, in steadfast love. Verse 18 says, who is a God like you? Micah's message, if we're reading him rightly, the message that will resound in our ears is, there is no God like the creator God. There is no God like the God of the Bible. In fact, so certain are we that this is what Micah wants you to leave his book with, that scholars believe that those words there at the beginning of verse 18, Micah has made a play on his own name. The name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? Just what the words we read right there. In the midst of sin and its consequences, there is always, 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 a message of hope and deliverance. We sang it this morning. Our sins are many, his mercy is more. Whoever you are today, whatever you think you have done that has made God's face toward you, a face of judgment, hatred, hear the message of Micah. This is a God like you will find nowhere else. In the midst of sin and consequences, there's always a message of hope and deliverance. Micah is speaking to a people who are about to be overrun by foreign armies. It's a message of judgment. But in the midst of that comes the promise He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. The day is coming, Micah says, when God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The day will come. Make sure you read Micah as a Christian because we know the day has come. When Jesus, on the day, on the night in which he was betrayed, took a piece of bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples, took a cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He was, of course, referring to the long-awaited promise, the day that would come when God would, in the words of the prophet Ezekiel, forgive their sins and remember them no more. How's that for good news? <laughs> oh, the day's gonna come when God will have compassion on us. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And the message of the New Testament is the day has come. You live in light of the fulfillment of everything Micah could only dream of. And so that's the place you occupy today, friends and by the grace of God now this is the freedom in which we can now live what do you think should we study micah let's we'll jump into it more next week let's pray father in heaven we thank you for this prophet certainly not minor he made an impact he left an impression his words were remembered And in a moment of grief and pain and sorrow and sadness, the only explanation for it could possibly be the reality of sin. For those who are in Christ, we know that even our suffering is redemptive. In the same way that on the cross, we see the horrific reality of sin, He Himself bore our sins on the tree. But in that moment of horror was a moment of great redemption. And so it is true for your people today, believers in Jesus. All of our suffering, whether they come from the consequences of our own sin or simply the realities of sin in the broken world, God has turned it into redemption. Now we struggle to see this, oh God, you know we are so tempted to believe in our pain that you hate us. But not if Micah was a true prophet, not if Jesus is the true prophet. In Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then what's going on? God in Christ and through his people is bringing salvation to his world. What an amazing place it is now to be in light of the coming of our Lord Jesus, to now read the prophet Micah and to know the certainties that are ours in Christ and in his new covenant. Would you? Proclaim this truth to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.